The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Well, for most of us, uh, a lot of us at least, you're probably like me and our kids return to school this next week. Um, usually, lots of people celebrate that. That's, there's always a little bit of sadness at our house um, when that happens. But this week, everything returns to normal. And I don't know how your Christmas break was, however much you took of a Christmas break. But the beginning of ours was kind of crazy busy. Um, my wife, Rochelle, her parents, her mom and um, her family were all over at our house like the weekend before Christmas. And then they left on that Monday. And then that Tuesday morning, my brother and sister-in-law got here and Tuesday night, which is Christmas Eve, my dad and his wife and her grandkids all got into town. And we just had like this revolving door of people coming, coming in and going out of our house. And, you know, guests, like guests give you two gifts, right? The first gift is when they come. And the second gift is when they leave. And we had that, but we also had this week after um, where it was just the four of us um, in our house. We're actually the five of us in my house. It's me and my wife and our two daughters and then my wife's second cousin who's 20 lives with us. And we absolutely love that time when we have extended time together with just us in the house. And like the, the hardest decision that you have to make in those days is at what time do you change out of your nighttime pajamas <laughs> to put on your day pajamas? <laughs> and we have a loft upstairs in our house, um, what we just call the pajama lounge. Like you could just go up there and do anything. And when we have this time together, I don't know what you do at your house, when we have this time together, there are basically three things that we do. Um, binge Netflix shows. Uh, play games and read books. Like that's all, that's the only thing on the agenda for the day. And one of the things I love about that kind of time is I do get time, extended time to read. And so this last week, the last two weeks, um, I read an incredible book called The Butterfly Effect. Um, if, you've got, if you've got little ones, just close, your, close their ears just for a quick second, just for like the next three minutes. Because the title of this book is The Butterfly Effect. Um, who pays the price for free porn? And it's got this guy named John Ronson who did all of the studies. Like when something like this becomes free, what is the outgrowth of that for people? And one of the most startling stories in the book was about a man named John Gibson. John Gibson was a Baptist pastor and a faculty member at New Orleans Seminary. And so some of you might remember that in 2015, there was a website called Ashley Madison. And on the Ashley Madison website, people who were married could go and sign up, fill out a profile to be matched or to meet people who were also married, who were looking to have relationships outside of their marriage. And so what happens in 2015 is a group of hackers hack the Ashley Madison website. And they contact the company and say, we're giving you two weeks to take down your website. And if you haven't taken it down in two weeks, 
we're going to expose all of the personal data of everyone who has a profile on your website. And Ashley Madison kind of thought this was just a threat and they didn't do anything. So when the two weeks were up, the hackers released all of the names of everyone on the Ashley Madison website, whoever had a profile. And not only their profile, but all of the information that they put in their profile, like what they were interested in, what they were looking for, where they lived. And they made all of this searchable online by zip code. So you could just go and put in a zip code and see everybody that's in that zip code who signed up for a profile on Ashley Madison. And one of the things that was revealed in all that is that by far the great majority of people who filled out a profile were men. And most of the women who had a profile weren't actually women. They were bots. And these people were getting on the website and they were talking to these bots and trying to meet up with these bots. And one of the names that was revealed was John Gibson. And he had taught students at seminary for years. He had been a pastor for years, for over 30 years, that, that in his little quadrant, his little sector of the world, he was really well known. And so when all of this data is released, John Gibson sits down in his kitchen he writes a letter to his wife and his kids. He walks into the garage, closes all the doors, turns on his car, and waits to die. And as you might imagine, this absolutely upended the lives of not just his family, but his church community and his school community and this very conservative enclave in New Orleans, just down the street from the French Quarter, but had built high walls to protect their students. And after his funeral, his wife said this. He said he struggled with addiction and with depression and those were two things that he couldn't. As much as he was willing to help other people and do for other people, he couldn't conceive that somebody would help him and do it for him in that kind of situation. The shame of this really was just more than what he could take. So Ecclesia, over the next couple of months, um, Pastor Chris and I and a couple of other voices are going to walk you through some of the images of Jesus in the Gospel of John. And what we're going to see is who Jesus is and what Jesus does and some of the things about Jesus' character and his teachings that don't get talked about a lot. And most of these are going to be what John, the Gospel writer John, calls signs. And that's different from when you read the other Gospels, because when the other Gospels talk about the same things that John talks about, they don't call them signs. They call them miracles. And everybody has heard of a miracle. And there are oftentimes that maybe you, maybe you have recently, you've prayed for a miracle. But John is really clear about something. These aren't miracles. These are signs. And there's a difference between a miracle 
and a sign. Because a miracle kind of gives you the impression that life is just kind of going on, like things are happening, and then something happens that you don't want to have happen. Like someone gets sick or someone dies, or, or maybe someone's even had a disease for a long time, and then God or Jesus sort of happens upon them and then fixes them, as if God is sort of kind of an interventionist. John says that's not how God actually works. That's not how Jesus actually works. Jesus works by signs. And signs are there all the time. You just don't notice them all the time. And a sign participates in the world in a different way than a miracle. So maybe a good way to think about it is a stop sign. Say you're driving, you're on your way here, you're headed to lunch someplace, and you get to a stop sign. Now, you can roll through a stop sign, not really stop. Some of you did this today. You can roll through a stop sign, not really stop. And if there's not a police officer, if there's not law enforcement there, big deal, nothing happens. But if you roll through a stop sign and a police officer is there, like you might get a ticket. And the reason that most of us stop at stop signs most of the time isn't because we know or don't know that a police officer is there. We stop at a sign because we know the sign points to something else. It's indicative of something else. Like it points to something that's beyond it, that's greater than it. And so these are things that, that Jesus does. Jesus performs signs, not simply to heal this person, not simply to raise this person from the dead, but that because he can do that, it points to something beyond that. And these are signs. And so for the next month or so, we're going to look at signs, except for the weekends that we don't, <laughs> like today. And if you would ask me, why not today? I will say, when you get to make the preaching calendar, you can do whatever you want to do. <laughs> but as I was reading the Gospel of John, there's something that's sandwiched in between two signs that I think is just as important as a sign. And it's something that I wish that John Gibson had known about. Because when he dies, his wife says the shame is just more than he could take. And I'd bet if I were to sit down with you for long enough and we were to talk seriously enough, that one of the things you'd find out about me and one of the things that I'd find out about you is that we are both carrying at the very least, little pockets of shame. Things about us, about our life, about our story that we just wish weren't so. Words we've said and acts we've done, things about the way we think, images about the way we look, judgments about our concerns, about what other people think about the way we think and the way we look, places that we've failed, 
where we feel like we should have succeeded, that we've all got those places. And the worst thing that we could think about is that something would happen and someone would post on the internet our name and our shame. That we just couldn't bear it. But as Jesus is teaching and displaying signs, he has this encounter that's about this very thing. And this is how John tells that story starting in John 4. He says, now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, which is actually saying a lot because how would you like to be John? Your name is John the Baptist and Jesus is baptizing more people than you're baptizing. You should be John the second Baptist, I guess, I don't know. Although in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. Now, I know Greek, I know very few people who actually know Greek, who actually use their Greek. And so you probably don't get this. This is a deep, profound, hard to get at fact when you read John 4. John says that Jesus was going to Galilee and he had to go through Samaria, which is not true. Jesus did not have to go through Samaria. Matter of fact, Jews went out of their way to not go through Samaria. Like there are ways back to Galilee from where Jesus was that didn't take him through Samaria at all and people used it all the time. Jews thought Samaria was a dirty place with dirty people and they considered Samaritans half-breeds and would do anything to avoid them. As a matter of fact, a thousand years before John writes this story, before this story happens, the Samaritans build a temple to worship God on Mount Gerizim. And the Jews think so little of Samaritans that they send an army to the mountain to destroy the temple. And every day, Jews went back and forth to Galilee, bypassing Samaria. The only way that John can say that Jesus had to go through Samaria is if Jesus wanted to go through Samaria. He goes on. So he came to a town known as Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon when a Samaritan woman came to draw water. Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone to buy food in town. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan. How can you ask me for a drink? for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Okay, so if you know this story, if you read this story before, you know there are a couple of things here that are pretty odd. The first thing that's actually pretty odd is that Jesus talks to a woman in public 
that he's not related to. And in the ancient world, this did not happen. The only reason that Jesus would talk to a woman in public that he wasn't related to is if he were the kind of man who would be soliciting a woman that he wasn't related to. This just did not happen. And you mostly, it did not happen at noon in the middle of the day. And the second thing that's odd is that she's out at this well in the middle of the day, which women in the ancient world didn't do. You went to the well in the morning and in the evening. No one's at the well. And so this is already a weird story, but we're about to find out why she's at the well in the middle of the day. This is what John says. He says, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who is it that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. And there you have it. Why is she alone in the middle of the day when no one is going to draw water from the well? Five husbands. Five husbands and the man she is with now is not her husband. Now, if you are here, I talked about this a little bit during Advent. This is not a time, this is not a place in the world where a woman was free to upgrade her husband. Like she was not free to divorce her husband or to leave her husband. She didn't go out to a party one night and find a better version. She couldn't get something new and improved. This is a time and a place in the world where women were literally property. And the only way to have five husbands is for your husband to die or to give you a certificate of divorce. And so we meet a woman, Jesus meets a woman who has either been widowed five times, been divorced five times, or a mix. Jesus meets a woman where her life and her life story 
is a tragedy and we don't know everything that happened to her, but I can tell you this, I don't think there's anybody in this room who would trade their life for hers. And you know what happens both in our world and in the ancient world? When someone endures tragedy after tragedy after tragedy, even when it's not their fault, do you know what you get for a lifetime of tragedy? Shame and exclusion. How many times have you seen, either you watched it on the news or it's somebody that you know, someone you're related to, maybe it's you, where the person, the victim, is the one who bears the shame. It wasn't you who abused you. But abuse victims bear the shame. It wasn't you who left your marriage, but you bear the shame. It wasn't you who decided to be born where you were born, to whom you were born, and raised the way that you were raised, but you, you bear the shame. And it's not like she's coming to the well in the middle of the day with a welcoming committee from Sicker. It's not like the women of the town have rallied around her and said, you've been through so much. Let's help you. Let's walk alongside of you. Let's care for you. They've decided that you're the the kind of woman that's either a black widow or unwanted by men, and we don't want you to get any of that on us. And she lives with that shame. And would you look at that in the middle of the day as she's going about her business, she meets Jesus. And then Jesus is just downright rude. as they're talking, Jesus says, you know, this is, this, this is probably inappropriate for me to talk to you out here like this. Why don't you go home and get your husband and I'll talk to him and he can mansplain it to you later. <laughs> he knows. And Jesus brings up the one thing in the world that she'd rather not talk about, which is shocking to most of us because we thought we were coming to Jesus to avoid our pain, and there goes Jesus bringing it up. We thought we came to Jesus because we were a little depressed or we felt like we needed a little bit something more and we thought maybe if we sprinkled some God on it, things would get better. And right there in the middle, 
when you are going about your business, doing all the things that you normally do, all the things that you have to do just to live, Jesus keeps bringing up your pain. Jesus is very much like going to the doctor. And you've been to the doctor and you told her like, oh, it hurts right here. And then she just pokes it. And you're like, yeah, pretty much. I just said that. You hurt me and we got no new information. Because you can't heal something if you don't know where it hurts. And the longer you follow Jesus, the more deeply you follow Jesus, you will have to deal with your shame. That's why a lot of us just don't do it. And we go so far and we decide this far is far enough and I'll just stay right here. Because Jesus, Jesus wants to deal with the thing that you have been avoiding dealing with. The thing you don't want to deal with is the thing Jesus wants to deal with. And the reason I know this is true, not just for me, but for her, is how she responds. This is what she says. Sir, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped here on this mountain, but your people say that Jerusalem is the only place for all to worship. Which is it? Jesus talks about five husbands and she wants to talk about mountains. You've had these conversations where you wanna talk about anything else in the world. You will deal with anything else in the world. Let's talk about politics. Let's talk about religion. Let's talk about the Texans. Let's talk about whatever it is that we need to talk about so we don't talk about this one thing. And I have been a pastor for over 22 years and I can tell you this, that most of us would rather talk about anything but our lives. And then we'd also like to complain that no one really knows us. She wants to talk about where to worship. Because religion is an easy veneer to lay over dealing with you. And so this is what Jesus tells her. He says, woman, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worship, worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. 
Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman, but no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. This is amazing about this story. Because Jesus brings up her five husbands and she doesn't want to talk about it. She wants to talk about which mountain to worship on. And he lets her. Don't you wish Jesus was your therapist? Like, you get to something that you don't really want to talk about, and they just kind of go with it. If, that, if that's what you want to deal with, if that's what you want to talk about, we'll just go with that. But then something monumental happens in this story. Jesus says, if you don't want to deal with it, I'll take you where you are. But when she leaves him, she goes and tells everyone, I met a man who told me everything I ever did. Everything? When she goes out, leaving her jar behind and tells everyone she has a story to tell. What's the story of everything you ever did? That story is five husbands. That this one encounter with Jesus releases her to be fully who she is and to fully embrace her story. It's one of the best books I read last year in 2019. It was a book by a man named Kurt Thompson. Kurt Thompson wrote a book called The Soul of Shame. And he says that the antidote to dealing with all of the shame that we experience and inherit in life is sharing your story in community. This is what he writes. He says, we are storytellers. We yearn to tell and hear stories of goodness and beauty. And this is the echo of God's intention. We long for our stories to be about joy, not just reflections of what we believe, but of who we are, who we long to be. But shame wants very much to infect every element of the mind in order to distort God's story and offer another narrative. To relationally confront our shame requires that we risk feeling it on, its, on the way to its healing. This is no easy task. This is the common undercurrent of virtually all of our relational brokenness. We sense, image, feel, and think all sorts of things that we never say because we're, too, we're far too frightened to be that honest, that vulnerable. But honest vulnerability is the key to both healing shame and its inevitable anticipated hellish outcome of abandonment. 
and preventing it from taking further root in our relationships and culture. So Ecclesia, this is the invitation. And it's so counterintuitive. But the invitation for me and for you to do with our own pain, our own shame, is to tell your story. And shame has this way of creating more of what it is. That it's, it's the withholding of ourselves, withholding of our story that creates loneliness and isolation. Because we fear that if people were to know, if people were to find out, that we'd be lonely and isolated. But in fact, it's the not sharing that creates loneliness and isolation. It's that fear that the people in my life would not love and accept me that caused John Gibson to walk into his garage and turn on his car. But the very opposite thing is true. That as you share your story, you will find healing and reconciliation and connection. And this is why, and I just believe this with all of my heart, it's not a plug for anything, that everybody in the world needs three things. Everybody needs a spiritual director, a therapist, and a small group. And the reason we need those things is to have other people willing to bear our story and to love us through healing. Because there is already someone who knows everything you ever did and he still loves you. Ecclesia, let me pray for you. God, would you give us courage to bring all of ourselves to you and to one another, that you would make this community a holy and protected one, where we are free to share the fullness of the story that you have brought us to and the stories that you are bringing us through, and that we would find in the eyes and homes of one another, people of healing and redemption and grace for whom you have chosen to give us as gifts to walk through this world together. And we ask all this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.ecclesiahouston.org.